Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. The pharmaceutical landscape of managed care is evolving. Our patients face new challenges brought on by the pandemic, such as increased mental health diagnoses and new onset diabetes. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. With me today is Susan Westcott, the Executive Lead of Clinical Services at Aluma. She will share how clinical collaboration between a health plan and ambulatory pharmacists is an effective equation for improved outcomes and savings. Welcome, Susan. Tell us a little about your background. Thanks for having me today. I am a pharmacist, and I've worked in a lot of different areas over my career. I've been a pharmacist for over 35 years, which makes me sound really old, but I feel like I'm young at heart, and I'm always learning. I've worked in retail pharmacy, mostly in hospitals, but I also have done some brand management in the pharmaceutical industry and including launching Warfarin in atrial fibrillation. So if that doesn't take your listeners back a little ways, I don't know what would. I'm actually at Mayo Clinic now, and I have been since the 1990s, where I've worked in both clinical and operational roles and have done research in the cancer center here, as well as worked in some business roles like business development I've been with Mayo Clinic's Pharmacy Benefit Service for about eight years. What a diverse career. Why did Mayo Clinic decide to venture into this space? We actually reached a decision point where we had owned a third-party administrator as well as a pharmacy benefits administrator, and we decided to sell the TPA. And so the question, of course, came up, should we sell our PBM or our pharmacy benefits group? And when we did some analytics and looked at all the things that our group was doing for Mayo Clinic, we decided to keep the pharmacy group. Specifically, there were a couple different areas where we were helping both the health plan and the entire enterprise to save money and to be more efficient and to offer more to our patients, if that makes sense. So we were able to coordinate, for example, 340B and group purchasing decisions with our formulary. That was really important to our pharmacies that were buying drugs, that they could buy what was maybe the cheapest insulin for them. We were also able to allow our members a lower cost in our pharmacies. We do different things like pass along savings on insulin to the member, as long as they shop at our pharmacy where we are able to buy it cheaper. Things like that, we just couldn't get by moving outside and having a vendor perform these services. And then one more thing that we do here, I know not every facility would make this decision, but Mayo has always had a custom formulary, which we develop with 15 different task forces. So these are really specialty task forces. So diabetologists making decisions about drugs for diabetes. And so our practice providers were very comfortable taking direction from these task forces and they agreed with their decisions for the most part. That was also really important to how we like to practice medicine. So that was really another key component. We look at pharmacy as not just a department, but an ecosystem. So Part of that ecosystem is the supply chain. What drugs are in short supply? What pricing can we get for different drugs? We coordinate clinical pharmacy care with our practice. That's pharmacists, experts in the practice. That's providers and prescribers writing prescriptions for patients. 
And it can also include some of our algorithms and methods that we use in our EHR to provide consistency on how we use drugs in our practice across Mayo Clinic. We had a lot of ability there to make an impact on how those services are delivered to our own employees and their beneficiaries, we call them, which are their dependents, their spouses, and their children. It was important to us that if I was practicing medicine at Mayo, that I would also be able to get the same drugs for myself and my family that I used in my practice every day and that I recommended for my patients. Sort of that consistency across the entire pharmacy ecosystem. The other thing we are able to do is by collaborating with all of these stakeholders is really take our care delivery model up a level and make sure that all the voices are heard, that we consider safety and efficacy of drugs, but also we consider value because value touches patients in their wallet. And sometimes people don't fill their prescription if they can't afford to fill it. So we knew those were important components as well. Fascinating. It's so interesting to think of pharmacy as an ecosystem. What are you seeing in terms of biosimilars? This is really, for us in the outpatient world, an exciting time right now, Gretchen, because we're starting to see biosimilars coming into our number one and number two drugs for payers. In 2023, which isn't that far away right now, we expect to see the first biosimilars for Humira, the originator product, starting to appear in January, and then a whole host of others coming probably in July of 2023. This is a huge blockbuster drug. Over $20 billion nationally is spent on this drug. This is, for many, many health plans, their number one expenditure. We definitely have an opportunity here to reduce cost and to try to optimize the savings potential. That can come in different ways. We don't have all the answers yet. Everybody is jockeying to understand this better, but the negotiations are ongoing right now with the different manufacturers of these drugs. The first on the scene is going to be Amgen with their product in January And I guess there's probably questions out there in everyone's mind around whether plans are going to be preferring biosimilars or preferring the originator product. If we think about this, we've seen this in the inhaler space where some of the branded big blockbuster drugs like Advair, plans stuck with the brand and took a rebate rather than moving to generic when the generic was available. Similarly with biosimilars, The question becomes, will big plans prefer the brand name drug, Humira, or will they move to an exclusive biosimilar formulary offering, which would mean they would not get a rebate? We know that these drugs won't be quite as cheap as generics. There will be a reduction somewhere in that 10 to 25% range potentially to start, and then competition will determine how low they're going to go, but they aren't going to be free. Plans are going to have to decide if the rebate turns out to be more significant than the actual list price of the biosimilar, then there's going to be some tough decisions that need to be made. At the end of all of this thought is patient. We really want to move them to the beginning. If we think about their needs, they may be paying a flat copay or they may be paying in coinsurance or on a high deductible health plan, they may be paying 100% for the first up to $7,000. For those members, the price does matter for the product. And choosing a brand over biosimilar strategy would force that list price to be higher. The member's coinsurance or HDHP payment would be higher than if 
we adopt a biosimilar strategy. There's a nice middle road here, I think, that I'm hopeful for that we'll be able to offer brand and biosimilar on the same formulary. And then the member has a choice depending on their situation and the plan that they've selected. Sounds like some exciting activity coming up in the next year to be able to provide patients value. What differentiates your approach? Aluma, we grew out of hospitals and health systems, clinics and pharmacies. Our parent companies were privately held, so you don't have any pressure from shareholders. And we're not affiliated with a certain pharmacy that we own. We're free to work with our clients, which are mostly hospitals and health systems, including Mayo Clinic, both Vizient, our parent company, which represents over 5,100 hospitals and health systems nationally. They really come from the perspective of their membership. They really think about what hospitals want and they try to deliver products that meet those needs. They're acutely aware of things like 340B, purchase opportunities through the GPO, and other synergies like specialty pharmacy. Secondly, Mayo Clinic, the other parent company, had our own needs that we were trying to fulfill for many, many years. By meeting our own needs, we found that our solutions are very applicable to others, and we can be flexible in how we apply those to meet the needs of individual health systems that might be different. I also think that Aluma, we listen first and we collaborate. We don't try to give a one-size-fits-all solution. We try to look at what's the problem for the health plan by looking at their data, by talking with their pharmacists who are very aware of the needs of the practice, the culture of the institution, and some of those other factors. Just to give you a quick example, Gretchen, our pharmacy team did a study to look at if you were going to make an intervention with patients to change their drug therapy, what was the most effective way to do that? And they found that embedded ambulatory care pharmacists were very effective at making a change in therapy and preventing negative outcomes for that member or that patient. When we compare that to a PBM sending a fax that usually ends up in the basement of the hospital somewhere and doesn't even get read, that was closer to zero. We have a lot of value as a pharmacy ecosystem, and we just want to harness that and use it to serve those patients and that health plan. Impressive work by that team. It's exciting to hear about the positive impacts of pharmacists. And I love the approach of Listen First. How has the pandemic impacted your patients? I don't think any of us anticipated, first of all, that this thing would last for two and a half years when it started. I vividly recall those days when we've had our first information about the pandemic and about COVID-19 and just wondering how it's all going to play out. And now that it's in the rearview mirror, the data just keeps coming in. There were a lot of upsides. People were able to work remotely like me. I got to work from home and probably gained another two hours in my day because I'm not commuting and I'm very efficient at home. People with kids at home because schools were shut, that impacted them. What we're seeing nationally, some of those impacts to mental health particularly, are quite pronounced. 47% of Americans continue to report a negative impact to their mental health. And actually, even before the pandemic, we were seeing as many as one in four people on a drug for mental health. It's half the people, really, who are readjusting. And some of them are doing it really well, and others are struggling. One of the areas of struggle, we're seeing addiction is up, but we're also seeing Other addictive behaviors and comforting behaviors like eating and use of alcohol have gone up during the pandemic. The downstream effects of that is we're holding back some diabetics who are newly diagnosed type 2s, and we haven't discovered who all of those people are yet because they haven't been to the doctor. 
they haven't been in for preventive screening. So they're not discovering new conditions. In 2021 and again in 2022, our spend is up for new diagnosis, such as diabetes, cancer, and inflammatory conditions. And we're also seeing the drug spend follow along with some of those things. Lastly, childhood obesity is way up. It's been climbing for five or 10 years, but we know that obesity impacts so many things related to health, including non-alcoholic fatty liver, which can lead to NASH, diabetes. We're seeing type 2s diagnosed now in the adolescent years, which we had never seen before. So all of that needs to be managed, and we need to bring all of our resources to bear to help these patients. There's a lot more to be done. How can frontline pharmacy staff utilize this in their daily work? Pharmacists have just a powerful role to play, in my opinion. But one of the stakeholders we don't know very well is our human resource benefit partner. These are the people who actually select the PBM to serve the health plan and make decisions about the formulary. And if you put this in perspective with the rest of the work that they're doing around the pension and all the things that they do every day, pharmacy kind of falls lower on their list because it's complicated. Prices are really hard to figure out. What we call channel management, where does the prescription go? Does it go to your inpatient pharmacy or does it go to Walgreens? They think that doesn't matter. They don't understand the savings that are possible there. Pharmacists can start by forming relationships with these HR benefit partners, get to know them, reach out, offer to help. If they get, say, a quarterly report or some data returned to them and they need help parsing through that and understanding what it means, there's nobody better to do that than a pharmacy leader, preferably somebody in the ambulatory care space. Or with some of the conditions like MS, that may be an inpatient clinician as well. But they'll tell you what their top five are going to be. It's Cancer Center, of course, too, is in there. That's one good place to start. Second big stakeholder in the organization that you may or may not know, maybe affiliated with the pharmacy group, is supply chain. And I've seen this many different ways where the supply chain leader is just matrixing with the chief pharmacy officer and just getting on some of those calls, but they don't actually report to each other. Other institutions will have a pharmacy purchasing group within the Department of Pharmacy, but just getting to know those people, hearing from them periodically on high-level issues like what's short supply, what's happening with white bagging at your institution, some of those things. If you have a formulary task force or formulary committee or a P&T committee, you're probably already involved. That's another area you can participate with. The outpatient pharmacy, you can build a specialty program even from just a single retail pharmacy location. You can start filling those and coordinating and optimizing any 340B eligibility that you might have. And then lastly, finance is another partner. They are often involved with submitting prior authorizations to people like me on the PA side that make the decisions. A strong ambulatory care pharmacy leader can really build out these relationships. And like I tell folks that I mentor, a leader doesn't have to have the word director after their name or manager. We can all lead. We can all be the spark to get something going and to float an idea. And hopefully it can grow from there. You have to also build trust. For many years, pharmacists were right up there with one of the most trusted voices. And I still think we are. Use that trust, build that trust, and people will rely on you to help them make decisions. It all comes back to good communication and collaboration. Where do you see us moving in the future? Pharmacists' roles are changing a little bit, even in 2022. If we think about, we didn't used to have people coding drug doses and alerts into the EHR. 
I know here at Mayo, we have over 20 pharmacists actually working on that task. So when we bring in financial information, that's another really important part that physicians, prescribers need, patients need. When we're making a decision about what drug should a patient take, if I have a choice, it's nice to see the price. So that's another place that pharmacists are bringing in that information and making sure it's displayed correctly so it's meaningful. We're expanding our role into IT, digital, patient support 24-7-365. They come in the pharmacy once a month to pick up their prescription. They come to the doctor once or twice a year, but all year they're managing their condition. Any kind of digital outreach we can do or programs that we can work with our PBM on to touch that patient more frequently through different platforms like text, email, phone calls, or bringing them back to a clinic that you might have at the hospital or visit with an MTM pharmacist. Those are places where we can really help with gaps of care and avoid duplication of effort between the different parties. Somebody gave me the example of if a patient has surgery, about three or four different parties reach out to them constantly in the same week that they were discharged. And they can't even get back to all the different people that are trying to reach them. But then two weeks later, a month later, when they start to have maybe an infection in their wound, nobody's calling them. We need to remember to look at how do we care for this patient at those most important points in their journey and making sure that they don't go off the rails and need our help. Those are a few of the places that I see pharmacists' roles expanding and being aware of your own self-funded health plan spend is a really good way to add value because if you can save the institution millions of dollars by helping them solve a problem, they're going to remember your name and ask you for help the next time. It's an interesting time to be in pharmacy. Susan, thank you so much for your time and expertise. It's been lovely having you on. Oh, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Gretchen. And thanks to all of your listeners. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.